With a show of hands, how many of you ever heard the phrase out of place before? Out of place. There's a reason why that's a thing, isn't it? There's a reason why. When something's out of place, it catches your attention in a different way. Like me starting this message in the back of the room or me wearing this jersey. This, uh, this jersey really seemed out of place to a whole lot of us, uh, regardless of what side of the border that you're on. This one seemed out of place. Uh, Brett Favre, he was, what, 16 seasons with the Packers? And to see him run out onto the field in 2009 wearing this jersey, that was surreal. It, it just seems so out of place. It, it, it caught our attention back then. This jersey still gets people's attention today. I hadn't even unzipped my hoodie, and someone was already going, that's a Favre jersey, isn't it? And we went down to Epcot. We were down in Epcot um, in, in October, the, the day that the Vikings were playing the Packers. So I thought, I better wear this just to see what happens. And people, it, they were getting reactions. And it was, what, eight years ago. But because this jersey was so out of place, people are still talking about it and buzzing about it. It still gets a reaction eight years later. Well, today, we're going to talk about two places that were so out of place that we're talking about them 2,000 years later. That's what we're going to be looking at here in just a few minutes. But I need to back up and getting a running start in case you're, you're new here to, uh, today. We started a season or a series a few weeks ago that coincides with the season that we're in called Advent. Advent is a season on the Christian calendar where we, we pause and, and we do the best we can as, as followers of Jesus to say, let's prepare our hearts and prepare our homes for a fresh visit from Christ this year. It's one of the things we, we try to do. And so this year, the way we've been doing that is we've been looking at what Matthew had to say about this whole first Christmas. Somebody who was a follower of Jesus, who, who wrote one of these accounts we have of Jesus' life, we've been going through his teachings this first century follower of Jesus. And right out of the gate, one of the things that we saw with, with Matthew is he includes all kinds of unexpected content. This guy was writing to convince Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. And it appears as though he's doing it all wrong because he's including all this content that normally wouldn't convince a Jewish person that Jesus was their Messiah. He began with a genealogy, we looked at this in week one, that highlights stories that most authors would have hidden. And then he continues on with these accounts of these unexpected ways that God was working through unexpected people. It's almost like he's framing his gospel before he gets to, to Jesus' adult life. It's almost like he's framing the whole thing like this. You think you know God? You think you know God? When he came, when he walked among us, he did all kinds of unexpected things. Well, today we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And we're going we're gonna to take a look at a section of the Bible that I'll confess I've never really explored before. This is one of those passages kind of like flyover country, right? We go through it on the way to something more interesting. But this is a fascinating section. Um, inside your, your bulletins, we have these outlines. We encourage you to write this down before we dig into today's text. In his account of the first Christmas, Matthew highlights two places that seem out of place. That's what we're going to look at today. In his account of the first Christmas, Matthew highlights two places that seem out of place. And again, I'm going to be honest with you. I always try to be, but I'm going to, I'm going to make that really clear here today. When we were framing out this series, I thought, ah, we can go with something better than Matthew included. Because Matthew, with this misfit series, he seemed to really set us up 
really well with some softballs because Matthew himself, he, he was a misfit. No one would have thought this is the guy who should be writing the, the, the gospel of the, one of the gospels. So he seemed like a great fit for a misfit series. And Joseph, we looked at that two weeks ago. He seemed like a great fit for a misfit series. And the Magi, they seem like a great fit for the misfit series. So I'm thinking, let's go with the shepherds because there would be a great fit for the misfit series. The only problem is Matthew doesn't talk about them. He doesn't mention them. Luke does. Matthew doesn't. So if we're going to be faithful to the text and pick up where we left off, now we've got two places. Two places. Egypt and Nazareth. Two places that Luke really doesn't spend much time talking about. In fact, he doesn't even mention the Egypt part. Now, just so you know, as we dive in here today, there are some skeptics who've accused Matthew of making all this up that we're going to look at today. This, this section. They said that, they, that this was a story that Matthew created, a backstory that would help convince his audience. Now, there's all kinds of problems with that. But one of the big problems is nobody expected this. Backstory. If you're going to make up a backstory, make up one that sounds believable. No one expected this backstory. There's a place to write this in your notes. When the long-awaited Messiah arrived, God's promises were fulfilled in unexpected ways, through unexpected people, and in unexpected places. Again, no one expected that when the Messiah did come, that he would have welcomed a man like Matthew into his inner circle. But three weeks ago, we saw that Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus saw something that no one else saw. And he believed that this was the guy to write this gospel. And nobody expected that the Messiah would be the stepson of a son of David. But God knew the truth about Joseph's character. And two weeks ago, our eyes were open to the fact that, Je- that Joseph was the ideal role model for Jesus to grow up and under. Last week, Jason highlighted the mysterious Magi. They weren't children of Israel. And yet, when they followed the star to the place where Jesus was, God fulfilled prophecies like this one in Isaiah 60, verse 3, which says, the nations shall come to your light. Well, I'm excited to pick up where we left off last week. So if you have your Bibles, let's do that. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to go, for you to go home with one free today. We keep a stack of them there at the table each and every week. Please take one as a, as a gift for you. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now, when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now we're going to dig into the context here in just a minute. But first I want to do two things before we, before we move on. The first is I want to put this challenge out there to all of the dads and all the husbands. This challenge that we see in the life of Joseph. One of the things we consistently see in his account is how this was a guy who was immediately obedient. Immediately obedient. He had an ear that he kept tuned towards heaven and he was willing to step up when God would whisper. So there's a challenge I want to put out before you. 
husbands, fathers. Can we do that? Can we do that? Can we, can we be immediately obedient? All right, that was the first thing I want to put out there. The second one is this. In this account, this example we see, we see that God doesn't always call people to put themselves in harm's way. And I think there's some people that probably need to hear that. Because there are times where God calls us to put ourselves in harm's way. There's also times when we have that voice, that, that ear pointed towards heaven, that the right thing to do is to get you and your family out of harm's way. We see that example here in Joseph. We also see it in the life of Jesus. So those are two things I just want to put out there before we dive in. Okay, so now let's talk about context. In context, what's going on here is there's an angel. It appears to Joseph in a dream and warns him that his family's in danger. So Joseph wakes up and immediately acts on this revelation. Now, under the cover of darkness, the family makes a run for the Egyptian border. And to put this into context, the Egyptian border, a safe zone at that time and that place for him, would have been about 90 miles away, which is roughly the direction and distance of New Ulm, Minnesota. So the family's got to get up under the cover of night, make a run for New Ulm, about that far, to, to, to Egypt. And at that time, there were a large number of Jews who were living in Egypt, especially in the city of Alexandria. It's estimated that Alexandria was home to about a million people. And fun fact, many of them were, in fact, up to a third of them were Jewish. But here's why it's surprising that that Matthew would even say anything about this. The Jews who were living in the Holy Land thought they were holier than the Jews who were living in Egypt for a number of reasons. So associating Joseph with the Egyptian Jews is yet another stain on Joseph's already stained reputation. So it's somewhat surprising that Matthew would even mention this trip if he's trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. But what's even more surprising is the way that Matthew apparently takes a passage from the Old Testament out of context. Matthew violates all the rules that they taught me in seminary of how to interpret Scripture. Matthew says that this journey to Egypt was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. But when you turn to the prophecy that he references, here's what you find. This is the prophecy he's talking about. Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. In context, is this a prophecy about the Messiah? No. In context, this is a prophecy about children of Israel. So no one expected this passage to be associated with fulfilling a prophecy about the Messiah. But God had opened Matthew's eyes to see things that most people didn't see. And Matthew began to see parallels between what God was doing then in the time of Moses, in the time of the Exodus, and what God was doing in his day. Both Joseph and the children of Israel fled from evil rulers under the cover of darkness. God brought the child Jesus out of Egypt as he did the children of Israel. Jesus was tested in the wilderness as were the children of Israel. Jesus' sermon on the mount is filled with parallels to what Moses said and did at the foot of Sinai. The, The parallels go on and on and on and on and on. And Matthew makes all kinds of them. The list just continues on. God did wonders in the days of the great exodus from Egypt. And it was if those days were now being fulfilled in the time of Jesus. All right, let's go back to our text, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, became furious. 
And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the Magi. Now, history records, and you can go to, and you can see the actual ruins today, that Herod had a fortress. It was called the Herodium. Remember that for later, the Herodium. And that fortress was with an eye shot of Bethlehem. So the Herodium is most likely the place where the death squads were dispatched from, from the Herodium. And there's echoes of Egypt in Herod's order. Because when Moses was a baby, the Egyptian pharaoh said to kill all the baby boys also. Well, what Matthew records in his account is very much in line with the Herod that we know from history and historical sources outside of the Bible. I came across this quote as I did my research. On a scale of, or on the scale of atrocities known to have been perpetrated by Herod during his latter years, this would register very low. During Herod's reign, there was a young popular priest who Herod didn't like, and he was found dead in a pool. And the official cause of death was drowning accident. The problem was the pool was this deep. Herod had his favorite wife strangled. Herod ordered the execution of several of his own sons. The historian Josephus reports that Herod rounded up all kinds of Jewish nobles when Herod knew that he was about to die. And the reason he did that, he gave orders that when he finally did pass, he wanted all of those nobles killed, these beloved people killed, so that there would be mourning in Israel when Herod died. That's the guy we're talking about here. All this from the one who was appointed the, quote, king of the Jews. And all this to say that what Matthew records in his gospel is very much in line with Herod's character. Let's continue on. Verse 17. Then, in all these atrocities, was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Well, once again, Matthew refers to a prophecy that appears to be taken out of context. And he even says, here's the address. Go look up the book of Jeremiah. You can go look it up for yourself. But when they fact-check him, once again, they would have fact-checked and found out that this is a prophecy that appeared to have already been fulfilled. Already fulfilled. In context, the prophecy refers to the children of Israel being carried off into exile by the Babylonians. Ramah was a city near Bethlehem in that region that was used as a hub. This is where they would gather the Jews and then they would deport them into Babylon. Rachel's name is invoked here because she was one of Israel's wives and she was buried in Ramah. And Matthew, what he's doing, he's linking all these things. He's linking all these things. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. Remember that phrase, land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. All right, so we read here that Herod dies before the child does. And what's really interesting is as I was doing my research, here's some irony. Guess where historians believe that Herod's body is buried? In the Herodium. In the very place from which he dispatched, likely, the death squads. Isn't that interesting? Here's another thing that was interesting as you look at the history. Those Jewish nobles 
that Herod rounded up. The ones he said, I'm going to put these people to death. I'm going to give orders to put them to death. So when I die, somebody's crying somewhere. Guess what happened when he died? They released those prisoners. So instead of mourning when Herod died, there was what? There was rejoicing. Pharaoh couldn't stop what God was doing. Babylonians couldn't stop what God was doing. Herod couldn't stop the promises that were being fulfilled. And neither could Herod's sons. Take a look at this. Verse 21. And Joseph rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. All right, so Archelaus, he is one of Herod the Great's not-so-great sons. And in fact, he was so not-so-great that the emperor of Rome said, get this guy out, they exiled him. And Archelaus's not-so-greatness is the reason we have a pilot later on. That's why we have a Roman governor, was because Archelaus was not-so-great. Well, I highlighted the phrase. I said, remember the phrase, land of Israel, earlier. It was in a passage, two passages ago we looked at, and it appears again in this passage that we just read. The phrase, land of Israel. This is a phrase that appears nowhere else in the New Testament. Only Matthew uses it. It is clear that one of the things that Matthew is doing here is he's trying to say those things that were happening in the time of Moses, in the time of the Exodus... These prophecies that were fulfilled, they're also being fulfilled now in the time of Jesus. There was a direct connection he was trying to make to connect the children of Israel coming out of Egypt with Jesus' return to Nazareth. And here's something that I never noticed before about Nazareth. And this is one of the things that gives me hope. This is one of the things that gives me hope. Returning to Nazareth wasn't Joseph's plan A. I never noticed that before. And again, this gives me hope because I want to be immediately obedient, but I'm always not. And there's a lot of times where I don't want to put myself or my family in a bad situation. And a lot of times I won't stop to think, maybe God does in a situation that seems at least bad to me. Going back to Nazareth was not Joseph's plan A. We see it in the text. He was planning to go to Judea. That's a different region. That's the region around Jerusalem, the region around Bethlehem. Why would he not want to go back to Nazareth? We saw that last week. Why would he want to go back to his hometown where all the shunning was going to happen? Where they knew all about this, this, what appeared to be scandalous birth to this unmarried couple. Why would he go back? So plan A is, I'm not going there. I'm not going to subject my family to that. I'm going to Judea. That was plan A. But God doesn't give Joseph the option for a fresh start. God sends Joseph back to a very small village where his and his wife's unplanned pregnancy would cast a shadow over their family for the rest of their lives. Nazareth would prove to be a hometown where Joseph would never feel at home. I'm going to repeat that phrase before I do. Those of you who understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, authentically authentic follower of Jesus, isn't this what he describes as the Christian experience? This world, we're in it, but not of it. It will never feel like home completely. Let me repeat that phrase I gave you. Nazareth would prove to be a hometown that would never feel like home. And Jesus, being both God and human, is it possible 
that when Jesus was later telling his disciples, you guys, you're going to be in but not of this world, is it possible that that was his experience growing up in a town that never felt like home? All right, continuing on, verse 23. And Joseph went and lived. He was obedient. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, Joseph has been off the, or the Matthew has been off the map when it comes to quoting scripture here. He keeps quoting all these prophecies that he appears to take out of context. You know what he does in this one? He quotes a prophecy that doesn't exist. You go ahead, try to find somewhere in the Old Testament where it's where a prophet said he'll be called a Nazarene. I can't find one. I can't find one. But I'm really excited to go where we're going to go now because this was fulfilled. It was fulfilled. I've never heard a sermon on this before. On the surface, Nazareth appears to be another misfit in the story. A a town that I don't even think is even mentioned in the Old Testament. A town that is tiny and obscure. It seems so out of place in the origin story of the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for. If I had been asked to come up with a message on Nazareth without having done the extra research this week, I would have basically, that would have been my sermon. Yeah, it was this misfit, you know, small, obscure, not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not where anybody expected. Nazareth was the perfect fit. The perfect fit. I don't have much time, but I'll do the best I can with the time I got. Let's start with this quote from one of my sources. Archaeological evidence in the region of Nazareth indicates that many people moved there from Judea, specifically from an area near where? From Bethlehem, which was the city of David. All right? So the city of David, these descendants of David, were the likely people who founded Nazareth. And they gave this new home a name that provides a clue to who these founders were. Some scholars believe that Nazareth was founded by people who could trace their family tree back to the line of David. And they got the name Nazareth from Isaiah 11, Isaiah 60. I put these things all kind of together, a little mashup here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who was King David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon this branch. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord with righteousness. This Messiah will judge the poor. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel. Your people, God, shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. And then this is in the first person with God. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands. A case can be made, and I think it's a strong one, that the name Nazareth comes from the Hebrew word for branch. That's where a number of scholars think the name came from. And the people who founded Nazareth wanted to establish a town whose very name expressed their hope that God would deliver on this promise to one day bring forth from this branch the great Messiah. They were expecting, God, do this. You're going to do this. Do this here, of all places. Come on. If that's not enough, the name Nazareth is also linked to an Aramaic word. Not just a Hebrew word, but an Aramaic word. The word for vow, suggesting that the founders of the village had made vows similar to the Nazarite vows that are found in Numbers 6, 1-21. through 21. 
So you've got a Greek origin, you, or a, a Hebrew origin, a possible Aramaic origin, and you do also have a possible Greek origin. In the Greek Old Testament that we refer to as a Septuagint, the expression Nazarite of God was used interchangeably with Holy One of God. So Nazareth appears to have been founded by people who wanted to do right by God, and they were eagerly waiting for a Messiah. Isn't that interesting? What happened when the Messiah came? They didn't recognize him. Now here's where this gets really interesting. Because Jesus, he's a complex person. There are also prophecies in the book of Isaiah that say this about the branch that will come forth from Jesse. He won't just be this heroic rescuer. He will also be this. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. He grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. Remember that word. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. All right, let's start to put this together. The citizens of Nazareth, they had hometown pride. We are the city that is expectantly waiting for the Messiah, and he's going to be this branch. He's going to be incredible. Well, that's not how the rest of um, Israel viewed Nazareth as this place that was linked to that. I came across this quote as I was prepping this week. In Jesus' day, Nazarene, if you're from Nazareth, Nazarene was virtually a synonym for what word? Despised. Hometown Nazareth, woohoo, we're the branch. Rest of the world, ah, Nazareth, what can come from there? Let's connect these dots. At first glance, Nazareth appears to be a misfit. Why would God select a small, insignificant village like this to be Jesus' hometown? But once again, we dig deeper into the word. I love the word. We discover that God sees things that most people miss. Here's how one of my sources summarized all this. Jesus is the powerful branch of righteous redemption for Israel. He's also the despised suffering servant who will take away our infirmities and will be pierced for our transgressions. The name Nazarene was for Jesus a title of honor as he became for Israel the long-awaited redemptive messianic branch. But the name was also a title of scorn as he became for Israel the despised suffering servant. It is not by accident that Jesus grew up in Nazareth and was identified with it. Can anyone think of a better place to serve as Jesus' hometown than Nazareth? Now, there's a lot more that could be said. A lot more that could be said. But we need to start our final approach here to the end of this teaching. And I want to share something else that I never considered before. The name Nazareth potentially has Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek words associated with it. And one of the reasons that the people of Nazareth would have been multilingual is that Nazareth was one on one of the few trade routes in the region. There was only a couple of them. There was one that went through Nazareth. There was one that went through Jerusalem. You pause to connect the dots. This is very significant. The reason that Herod knew that he had been unwitted, or he had been 
outmatched by the uh, Magi is they didn't come back through Jerusalem. If they were going to go back to their hometown, there's not that many trade routes. You don't, go, you don't take a scenic route, you know? So they would have come back through Jerusalem. But they didn't. That's how he knew that the Magi had outwitted him. If they went the long way home, guess what town the long way home would have taken them through? The Magi. Nazareth. If the Magi took the long way home, which they apparently did, it's highly likely that they went through Nazareth. When you consider that when the Magi rolled in to Jerusalem, this huge city got all worked up. Who are these guys? Massive city. And, and these, they, they get all worked up because these Magi were such a standout, different, out-of-place group. How much more would the Magi, as they come through tiny Nazareth, cause a stir? I can relate to this because I grew up in the country outside of a small town. So there's a double little, right? I grew up about seven miles outside of a small town called Hastings. And on Monday, September 9th, 1878, President Rutherford B. Hayes visited Hastings. And he stayed right here at the home of William LeDuc. We used to call this the LeDuc Mansion. I'd pass it on my way home from Kennedy Elementary in the school bus. Why in the world do I know? that Rutherford B. Hayes stayed on a Monday in Hastings. Because it's Hastings. <laughs> right? And so 90 years later, they're still telling the story. There was once a famous person that actually came to our town. When the Bostonator and the rest of the Magi passed through Nazareth, it was a sign. It was a sign that the people of Nazareth missed. These people whose the very name of their town is linked to a group of people who said, we are eagerly waiting for the Messiah. And when he comes, oh, we are so ready to join team him. And here's this sign. And they missed it. Is there a chance that those of us in this room who call ourselves Christians, that sometimes we miss what God is doing too? that there are sometimes things that seem out of place and we dismiss them as out of place rather than saying, no, maybe actually this is something I should be attentive to. Is it possible? While each of the misfits that we looked at in this series are unique, they have these two things in common. One, they saw something that most people missed. And two, they took a courageous step of faith in that direction. Repeat that one more time. Matthew's misfits had two things in common. They saw something that most people missed and they took a courageous step of faith in that direction. This Advent, will you follow in their footsteps? We want to invite you to experience God with us and there's a place to write this in your notes. If you honestly and authentically want to do that in your life, there's a place to write this down. You will sometimes find yourself in places that feel out of place. Can I get an amen? This is just going to happen. In fact, sometimes it's probably too weak of a word, right? Often, We'll find ourselves in places that seem out of place. And sometimes it's a macro level. Sometimes it is on the level of a new job that just feels like it's out of place. Or a new city, or a new state, or a new school. So it could be this big macro thing. Or this does not feel right. I, it, I just feel out of place. But it also could be something on a much smaller level. Our family on Friday night, when we were 
not trying to stalk you, Michelle, but we're following you. We just kept going and we went out to eat there. We went out to eat. And it was clear while we were there that our server was really struggling, really struggling. And sometimes you can be at the quote wrong place at the right time. It felt like the wrong place when all of our orders came and Laura's didn't, you know, and when he was knocking over glasses on the table next to us. But maybe we were in the wrong place at the right time. Maybe what felt out of place was actually an opportunity for us to say, hey, you're doing a great job. And we did the best we could to do that, to try to represent Christ well in that smaller situation. I'd encourage you to write this down. Sometimes God places us in the wrong place at the right time. On a macro level, on a real small level. Where this feels wrong, it feels like this isn't going the way we'd want it to go. But maybe there's a purposefulness behind that. There will be times where you find yourself asking, what am I doing here? And I want to encourage you when that question comes, to not ask it rhetorically, but to turn it into a prayer. God, what am I doing here? What would you have me to do? Open my eyes as I'm sitting here on this bench during this basketball game. Open my eyes as I have this coworker that I don't know what to do with. Open my eyes in my marriage, in my singleness. Open my eyes. God, what am I doing here? If the Christmas story reveals anything, it reveals that God is at work in unexpected ways and in unexpected places. And the last thing I want to encourage you to write down is this. This Advent season, will you honor your commitment to follow and honor Christ wherever he leads and to encourage and challenge others who are seeking the same. A lot of times it's easy to cast stones, isn't it? I think about school as a great example of that. Your kids should be in public school. Your kids should be in homeschool. Your kids should be in private school. Or maybe we should follow God wherever he leads. Right? Amen? Well, I want you to know, even as I give that challenge to you as individuals, as households, and myself, I want you to know if you're new here, our church is as committed as we can be to this. We want to be a church that follows wherever God leads. If that weren't the case, we would not be in a rented room trying to see kids on the floor instead of on a stage, right? But we want to be a church that follows God wherever he leads, wherever he leads, whether that's to a rented room, whether it's to a building, wherever he leads. And earlier this week, I was out on my one block run, right? (laughs) And uh, maybe two blocks, maybe two blocks. I was out for my run, and when I got, literally, I got to Tanglewood and Hanson, this idea, because I was praying about this message and praying about these things. Literally, I got to Tanglewood and Hanson, and I was reminded of a very specific incident. And I went back, and I pulled my old emails out, and the incident happened on Tuesday, May 29th, 2007. And I remember that. I remember sitting at my desk, because I was sitting at the desk in a beautiful building, multi-million dollar church building. And it was a Tuesday And the reason I was praying so hard is because on Thursday of that same week, I was going to be signing a rental agreement with Chippewa Middle School for us to go there as a church. And on that Friday, it would be day one as a pastor in a homeless church. And so I was praying really hard. God, what did I get myself into? What are, you know, all of us, because there's a group of us, a small group of us who believe that God was calling us to step out in faith. To step out in faith in an area, it didn't make sense. Why would you start a new church when there's so many nice church buildings all around us? Why? 
The only reason why would be as if God is truly leading you to do so. And we believed as best we could that he was. So we stepped out in obedience. Well, I finished praying and I opened up my inbox Tuesday morning, Monday night, a family who I don't even know what their last names are. John and Sandy, John and Sandy, I barely knew this family. They, they sent me an email and in that email, there was a very specific prayer that I had prayed came out of the scripture that word for word, they had felt prompted to pray that prayer for me that night. And that piece is as significant as that was. I think the biggest significance was that validated what they led with to me. And what they led with was this. They said, when we were praying, we had this impression that we were supposed to pray and pass this along to you. And this is a paraphrase that they felt they were supposed to deliver to us as a church out of Psalm 2.8. Ask of me and I'll give you the Chippewa neighborhood and its surroundings as your inheritance. And that doesn't mean that we're trying to acquire higher market share. That, that's not how we do things here. What that says to me is God wants to do something here. Something unexpected. Something that none of us planned on. And we want to be obedient to that. Whatever it means. Even if it's in unexpected ways. Even if we find ourselves in a middle school. Even if we find ourselves in a community center. Even if we find ourselves at Gospel Hill Camp and all these different places. Whatever that means. If you were to ask me 10 years ago, what's your path? Well, our path is obvious. We start in a building and then we, or we start in a rental facility until we can afford to get a building. That's the path. Let's not just assume that we're going to do anything other than truly follow Jesus. And let's keep our eyes open. Okay, why are we in this place in such a time as this when they're expanding? What does that mean? What is God up to? This isn't just a word for us as individuals. This is a word for us as a church. And let's seal this with a time of, of prayer. I want to invite the worship band to come forward and, uh, and, and, let's, and let's pray as they do. Father, um, these are exciting times. These are exciting times because you're at work in them. Father, we want to be a people First as individuals who, who are immediate obedient. We keep that ear towards heaven. And even when things seem out of place, maybe especially when they seem out of place, that we'll seek you. What could you possibly be doing in this situation? Father, as households, when we find ourselves in, in situations that seem out of place, may we first go to you and say, God, what is this about? What would you have me to do in this situation? And Father, certainly as a church, we want to be a, a people who are following you, regardless of where you lead, knowing that your ways are higher than our ways. Father, we're so excited to celebrate this Christmas. We pray that you'll help us to be able to, to join in those angel choruses and to, and to seize the wonder of the moment. In fact, right now, Lord, would you do that? Please stand. This is a stand-up song. Please stand. Let's, let's celebrate this moment. God, help us to, to worship you now this God of the unexpected. In Jesus' name, amen.